we're going to look at a famous passage in Jeremiah. And this is a passage that takes what we've talked about the past two weeks and kind of shakes it up a little bit and ups the ante and says, okay, that sounds great, Ben, the Martin Luther King stuff and the, the UGA needs my holiness. But what if, what if I'm a Christian who, who feels like he or she is living in a, in a moment, in a culture, in a town, in an atmosphere that's hostile to everything I believe? It's pulling against the direction I'm trying to move in. What do I do then? How am I supposed to interact with my buddies, with my fraternity brothers, sorority sisters, classmates, people downtown? What's that relationship supposed to look like? That's what Jeremiah 29 is about. The people of God, when they're parachuted right in the middle of the world, which is a term I'll use tonight a few times, and it just means the people, the systems, the places on planet Earth that have not been renewed in Jesus Christ. Springtime has not come yet, still dead in winter. What does it look like when God puts his people right in the middle of that context? This is the word of God. Jeremiah 29, first 14 verses. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar, who was the the king or the president of Babylon uh, at the time, all those people that he had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So really quick. A lot of the Israelites have been conquered by Babylon, and they've been taken away, kidnapped and brought to Nebuchadnezzar's land, the victor's land. They've left home, and Jeremiah is a prophet speaking on God's behalf to these people in that moment. He says, verse 3, The letter was sent by the hand of um, Elasa, the son of Shapham, and Gemariah, the son of Hikael whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, this is what the letter said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. The Lord there is Yahweh. Pray to your God. Pray to me on Babylon's behalf for Babylon. For For in Babylon's welfare, you will find your welfare. Your fates are tied together, he's saying. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets, your false prophets, your diviners who are among you, don't let them deceive you. Don't listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they, t- they are prophesying to you in my name. I didn't send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, the promised land. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Let's pray. Lord, Uh, All of us, every single person in this room, 
uh, was alienated from you or is. We were not born friends with you. We were not born liking you. We were not born wanting anything to do with you. We were far from you. We were in the dark. We were dead. And you have come and met us where we were in our death, in our enmity, in our anger towards you, our illegitimate anger. And whatever it was, in our denial of you, you met us there. And you made us alive. And I pray that you do that again tonight. I pray that you would teach us. Our God would teach his creatures. Our Redeemer would teach his sons and daughters tonight. That you would get through to us our minds, our hearts. Show us how to love the world the way you love the world. Show us how to love you the way you call us to. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here's a new way to think about yourself. I told you a few weeks ago, the Bible says you're a priest. No matter what you think about yourself, you're a priest, you're a pastor. Another thing that you and I are, regardless of background, how you grew up, where you grew up, what kind of home you grew up in, you are a culture maker. And I am too. By virtue of your humanity, because you're a human being, you're a culture maker. And we make culture either on purpose, like intentionally, actively, or we accidentally make culture unintentionally. It just happens, kind of subconsciously. But one fact remains, every waking hour of your day, we are little culture manufacturers, all of us. Any hour that you're awake, we are producing culture. When you add up enough of these tiny little micro moments of culture, you get a macro culture. In other words, you get a reputation, you get what your friends know you by. When there's a church like this is Redeemer Presbyterian, when enough micro moments of culture happen in this church, they get grouped together and that's what people say when they say, yeah, I went to Redeemer. What do you think about it? What they tell you as their answer is what the culture of that church is. Let's bring this down to earth a little bit. In the 10 minutes before the music started, Arya started tonight, there was a culture back there in the back of the room or in the lobby when you came in. And all of us participated in it and contributed to it, either intentionally and thoughtfully or unintentionally and passively. So, for instance, positively, if you contributed to that culture back there, um, perhaps like you looked someone in the eye and you're like, hey, I don't know you. I'm glad you're here, and you swapped names, and you, you got to know them just a little bit. You can't get to know people very well in two minutes, but, but you did that, and someone felt known, and someone felt human, like, I exist. They saw me. That was cool. I wasn't sitting in the corner alone. Or maybe you accidentally participated in creating some culture that left people feeling maybe a little bit lonelier, or not seen, or not remembered, not known. Um, I was an expert at this when I, when I was a student at RUF. Uh, this side door was my lifeline. And so I'd come in a few minutes late, leave a little bit early. And I look back at that moment, I'm like, I was creating a culture that left other people feeling lonelier. We're always creating culture. We're always doing it, whether we want to or not. Your, your RUF community group or the Bible study you're a part of at your church has a culture. And the same thing flies. We are all, all of us, all the time, actively, intentionally creating culture, accidentally, passively creating it. So, you know, maybe you decided to finally say something real and revealing and transparent and honest when they said, what should we pray for at the end? And you have seen the ripple effect of that. Three people have come to you in the past week and said, me too. 
I didn't know anyone else struggled with that. Thank you so much. You freed me to finally be honest. Or conversely, uh, maybe you're in that group and it's you know three or four months in and you're just, it's just never occurred to me that me not talking is creating a culture where people don't talk here. Or me kind of throwing out the, the prayer request of the test every week is creating a culture where all we really... All of my friends' needs are just academic. We're always creating culture. In your dorm, your apartment, your house, your sorority house, your fraternity house, we're participating and contributing towards some kind of culture all around us. And that means that each person creates a wake. So it's like skiing in a lake. There's a wake behind you that... that radiates out from that and ripples onto all the shores around it. And behind you and behind me is a wake of culture. And it is either bringing healing to people or it's harming people in little or big ways. And this is what's true of all of us. Now, why am I talking about culture making on a passage like we just read with all those crazy Babylonian names at the front of it that I can't pronounce with my small print Bible. What does this have to do with that? Well, if you grew up in the church, this might be familiar to you. If you didn't grow up in the church, I'll tell you. Uh, There's this story. Israel was known as the people of God. God said, of all the nations, I am choosing Israel to be my billboard to the world. If you wanted to know what the God of the Bible was like, what Yahweh was like, you look at Israel. And you say, man, their God takes care of them. He protects them. Like we talked about last night, they smell, they hear the music of that holiness coming out of them, the music of the gospel coming out of God's people, and it's compelling, and you're like, I want some of that. That's what Israel was supposed to be. If you're living in a place like Abbey West or uh, Polo Club or something like that, one of these big kind of apartment complexes or one of the high-rises downtown, most smart builders will have a model unit, Right? And what's the model unit there for? Or if it's a neighborhood, a model home. It's an unoccupied home, and it's like designed better than all the other houses. It's there. That model condo or apartment is there so that you will come and take a tour through that. And you will start connecting the dots and saying, man, I want to live here. This place is awesome. When you become an old, uh, old guy like me and you buy a house those model homes are really important because you're like shaking the walls and kicking the baseboards to see if it's well constructed. And, and if it is, and if the craftsmanship is there, and if it's sound and it's beautiful, then you say, man, I want this builder to build my house because I've experienced it, I've tasted it, I've, I've touched it, I've smelled it. Israel was supposed to be the model home for the ancient world. Not just preachers who stood on soapboxes telling the world, you should come to God, he's really good. Israel was the model home. As you get to know us, as you talk to us, as you do business with us in the streets, as we're neighbors together, you start connecting the dots. Who is your God? Because he's real, he's alive, he's good, he's patient. I need him, I want him. In other words... Israel was supposed to be, Israel was this culture manufacturer. A manufacturer, an exporter of gospel culture, of gracious culture, of kingdom culture to the world. Israel was the epicenter of that. And it was sending it out around the ancient world. These manufacturers of a culture that 
said it's okay to be weak because our identity is not in our power and it's not in our strength. Our identity is in our God who saved us. These manufacturers of of culture that says the oppressed might not have a voice, but we're their voice. The weak might not have a megaphone, but we'll be their megaphone. We'll stand up for them. We care about justice. A culture where you look at your neighbor, even if he or she's a stranger, and you say, I'm responsible for them. And so unlike the priest in the Good Samaritan parable, you don't pass by. But you see them and you say, I'm responsible for that guy's condition. And I've got to move towards him. That's what Israel was supposed to be. But... If you have that picture in your mind of like the clean paint on the wall, it just smells amazing. Israel was supposed to be that. What Israel had become over decades, living in the promised land, it had become animal house. And if you imagine the disparity between those two experiences, I was a pledge for six months. It used to be like half a year that you were a pledge before they would initiate you. And so we were at the house probably two or three mornings a week cleaning up. And Israel was supposed to be the model home, and Israel became what my house smelled like on Saturday mornings, where your feet just like stick to the floor on who knows what that's there from the night before. And the smells and the appearance and the people stumbling around at 11 o'clock the next day, that's what Israel had become. That's what the model home had become, this roach-infested, nasty billboard, and all the nations were watching. And so God does what any good landlord does, and he says, you're evicted. You're out of here. To discipline his people, to teach them, to to chasten them, to humble them. And so they go off to Babylon. And he does this, like the Israelites didn't know God was doing this. All they knew is, it would be like today if, um, you know, Vladimir Putin invaded America and carried us all back to Moscow and we're kind of like property of the state back there. You know, you'd be mad at Vladimir Putin, not God. You wouldn't be thinking, God has just exported us to Russia. Well, the, the, Jews, the Jews were mad at Nebuchadnezzar. That's why the passage says the first time around, Nebuchadnezzar exported them. And the second two times, it says God exported them. Through Nebuchadnezzar, through this military conquering, Babylon coming and swallowing up Israel, God is disciplining his people. He takes them to Babylon, which at the time was the cultural center of the, of, 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 of the ancient world. Israel was supposed to be this manufacturer of culture. Babylon was. Babylon was the Wall Street, the Silicon Valley, the Washington, D.C., the Hollywood, all of it. The Nashville of the ancient world. It all came from Babylon. Do you think that the Babylonians have any interest in indoctrinating the Jews after they've conquered them? You bet. This was their military strategy. When they conquered a people, they didn't just say, hey, put your guns down, we're the boss now. They took you to Babylon for decades so that Babylonian culture would infuse you, would soak, you would be saturated with it, so you'd just forget who you are, where you came from. All of your Jewish culture would be gone. You'd be Babylonian. You're not a threat when you're one of them. That's how they'd do it. And the Jews knew this. And they, they hated the Babylonians. You think people, religious people now might be a little self-righteous like the Jews? Hated the Babylonians. They were so dirty and corrupt, even though the Jews were living like I just told you. And so the Jews are on to the Babylonians. They're like, we know what they're going to do. It's like they're going to indoctrinate us subtly. 
They're going to make things like Netflix. We don't know we're being indoctrinated. It's going to slide it in there, and 10 years later, I'm going to be just like them or whatever else. It happens today, obviously. And so they're on their guard. And the big conundrum and the big question comes up for the people of God. So what are we supposed to do when we're living there? During our time of exile, which for the Christian, Peter says, is life until Jesus comes back or you go to him. During their time in exile, how are they supposed to live? How are they supposed to interact with the Babylonians? Are they supposed to kind of go full Amish and retreat and have their own little colony? Are they supposed to, you know, fight and burn it down and assassinate Nebuchadnezzar and other people? Are they supposed to assimilate so that they don't stand out? Just kind of, let's become one of them so we don't, like, stick our head up too high and get it whacked down. What are they supposed to do? Are they supposed to escape? That's the big question that the people of God were asking. They're still asking it today, right? What do we do? And I'm not making some big us and them argument, but I'm I'm saying there is a distinct difference in those who have been made new in Jesus and those who have not. There's a distinct difference in the gospel's culture and the world's culture. Is there not? And doesn't the question, don't the confusions come up in your everyday life how am I supposed to talk to this person? How am I supposed to relate to this person? How am I supposed to date this person? Should I live with that person? Should I work with that person? Israel's wrestling with the same questions. So here's how they answered the question. Here's how they answered that question, not God. Here's how they answered it. The chapter before is a false prophet. He's named Hananiah. He says he's speaking on behalf of God, but he ain't. This is what he says. Thus says the Lord, Hananiah says... I will break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all the nations within two years. And they're like, awesome. We don't even have to unpack our suitcases. Like, we just get to kind of like grin and bear it and slide by until we're out of this mess. So it becomes this posture of let's just retreat, let's set up shop on the edge of town and not really interact with anybody. We'll kind of stay in our own little group. Well, here was the problem with that, the very last verses um, of chapter uh, 29. This is what God says. He says, Because you have said the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon, thus says the Lord concerning the king who sits on the throne of David. Mm, That's not the verse I thought. Well, anyway, here's what it is. God says to that prophet, Hananiah, you don't speak on my behalf. You are lying to my people, and they're buying it. And the people who are suffering are the Babylonians. And I'm not going to have any more of it. Shut your mouth. And he says, hey, Jeremiah, come here. Write a letter to my people in Babylon and tell them that you've been duped. You've been lied to. Because these these pastors who, who said they're speaking on my authority told you to retreat from the world to not unpack your suitcases, to have this consumeristic mentality of, yeah, I'll go shop at Babylonian stores and I'll take their culture, but there'll be no interaction between me and them. He says, it was all a lie. So Jeremiah, go and tell him this. And Jeremiah does. Here's why, really quickly, why God is so frustrated and, and angry about that kind of stuff. Because it says to the world, I am not responsible for you. I don't owe you anything. 
It's the same instinct Cain has after he kills Abel. He's like, what, am I my brother's keeper? Am I supposed to take care of him? It's the same thing in the parable of the prodigal son, the, the, all the religious officials. They're like, what, is he my neighbor? I don't even know the guy. Come on. It's an attitude of, I don't owe them anything. I'm just here biding my time until Jesus comes and breaks me out of here. And on top of that, exile, we've talked about this already. It's hard enough, it's, it's confusing enough that it kind of turns your eyeballs around. So you're stuck in your own little world. Man, life is so hard. I don't like this. Why do I have to be here? And it kind of makes you a narcissist. You're just kind of like the echo chamber of your own mind. And that had happened to Israel. It had cut them off from the people that God had put them around. Again, don't lose sight of that. It wasn't a random military victory. It wasn't a cultural change or cultural phenomenon. It wasn't the decline of the church and the rise of the secular age that the Israelites had to leave and go there. It was God. Tim Keller speaks on this passage, and he says, it, it, it seemed like such ordinary reasons that produced all the changes and all the conflict. And he says, it was God's Nebuchadnezzar that came and took the Babylonians out. It was God's pluralistic age that created all these problems for Israel to have to ask the question, how are we supposed to love these people and live with them? In our moment, in our age, in the confusion we have of how to reach out and love our friends, how to be there for them, how not to assimilate, God is the one who still has his hands on the reins, orchestrating all of these things that we sometimes freak out about. Man, where's, where's America going? I get it. You're probably not that person. I don't think I'm that person. Some of our parents are that people. Our grandparents are those people. You will become those people because I already am a little bit. I hate it, but I am a little bit. I'm wondering where this country's going. And I don't care. But I should care. And, Je- and this is, these are the things that Jeremiah is saying to the people. And this is crazy. This is crazy because you would expect God would say, I'm going to raise up a prophet. Prophet, go to my people in Babylon and tell them, evangelize those dirty pagans. Tell them how wicked they are and call them to repent. Or you would think he would say, hey, go build a colony for yourself out there. Don't be stained by them. But he doesn't. He says this. This is why it's crazy. Build a house. Plant a garden. Eat the vegetables that come from that garden. Marry. Have kids. Multiply there and do not decrease. And you're like, wait, what? This is an urgent message, like red lights flashing, a message from God to his people in exile, and he's talking about build a house, plant a garden, have kids. And you're like, what? And that's, that is the urgent message, because what God is calling his people to do is put roots down, because you're going to be here for a while. You need to unpack your suitcase. You need to stop treating, uh, for our sake, Athens, UGA, whatever school you're in, whatever program you're in. You need to stop treating it as a hotel that you're just temporarily staying in, and you need to treat it in a sense as home. Because when you think of a place as home, you treat it very differently than when you think of a place as Pine View, and you trash it because it's already that way. And you're like, I'm just here for a year. You know, I could burn the place down and look better than what I got when I came in. 
When you see a place as home, when you know you're staying, doesn't it immediately change your mentality of how you're going to live and what you're going to do? And God is saying, contrary to the false prophets who told you, just two more, day, two more years and you're out of here, 70 years. And this is what I want you to do in those 70 years. I want you to get back to plan A of exporting gospel culture behind enemy lines, in a sense. And so you see the brilliance of God and the genius of God here, and it's like, okay, Israel, you weren't exporting gospel culture, so I'm going to export you. <laughs> so there's no, no delivery needs to be made now. It's literally in your backyard. As you live this way, this distinct way where you prize me and your value is in me and your identity is in me, and you do, you see sin, like Peter said last week, as waging war against your soul, not as your friend, but it's waging war against you. As you see this, as you embody this, as you cling to me in dependence, I want them to see it. And I want them to connect the dots. Like Peter said last week, live such good lives among the pagans that they see your good works and glorify God because of you and because of how you're living and what you're doing. This is what God called his people to do. This is not a hands-off culture. This is not a you-do-you-and-we'll-do-us culture. Uh, this was not a we're-better-than-you, us-and-them culture. This is we're-in-this-with-you culture that he was calling Israel to make. Didn't he use those very words almost? Where he says, for in their welfare comes your welfare. And in their decline is your decline. He's tying his people to their city, to their town, to their college, and saying, pray for this, these people. Pray for this place. Pray that it will come to know me. Pray the lights will go on. Pray hearts will break and become soft again. Pray justice will be prized again. Pray evil will be able to seen for what it is and resisted. Pray righteousness will be able to be seen for what it is and pursued. Pray that people would love each other. Because the more Athens moves in that direction and the more your little organic chemistry study group moves in that direction, your blessing comes in that too. That's how God is going to bring that blessing to your shore as well, is through these things changing. I want to end kind of practically bringing this down to earth and thinking through, okay, did I, I don't know, did I come to, did I come to UGA to consume UGA? Man, awesome football program. Great academic rigor. I'm going to get a great job. Did you come here to take? Get your degree and get out? Did you come here to consume Athens? Great music scene. Great restaurants. Great culture. Twilight Criterium. Man, best night of the year. Did you come to consume Athens and then leave? God calls us to come and give. With no expectation of return, God calls us to come and pray, to come and intercede, to come here in this place, in this town, and remember who you are and leverage who you are for the sake of this place. And for the sake of these people, I keep saying place. A place is full of people, people with names and stories. They're your friends. They're my friends. This is how God calls us to live in their midst. So I don't know if there's just three. There might be more, but I came up with three attitudes of, of three attitudes towards the UGA in Athens, two of which are destructive, one of which is healing. There's the tourist attitude. College is, or UGA is, or Athens is, or whatever. It's, it's my hotel. 
Think about the last time you traveled. You stayed in a hotel, spring break last year, whatever, somewhere over Christmas break. You were a tourist. Did any of the problems of that city really bother you? Any of the policy issues that need to be tweaked? Did you know about or care about the school system when you went to New York over Christmas break or whatever? Um, Did it bother you? Did you stop and talk to the homeless people and try to figure out systemically why is this happening here so badly? Or did you just walk past it? Look, I'm not guilt-tripping us. I'm just saying when you're a tourist, you're not there to, like, fix stuff. When you're a tourist, you're there to consume. You're there to see. You're there to enjoy. But by definition, you're not invested. There's no skin in the game. That's why tourism's fun. It's lighthearted. It's burdenless. That mentality applied to this context is, I'm just here to get my degree and get out. I'm graduating in four years. Why get involved? Or I'm graduating in six months. I only have six months left. Why do anything else? Why get to know these new people? What's the point? That's the tourism mentality of being in this place, but not really being here, but being focused on where we're going to go next and what we're going to do next. Then there's the renter mentality. And um, I lived in, I, I was one of those idiots in Athens who moved somewhere different every single year. Ten years in Athens, I lived in like eight different places. And so I did a lot of renting, and um, a renting mentality, you're a little bit more invested. You care. When you're a renter, you actually care if your neighbors across the street are always keeping you up at 3 o'clock. So you care about stuff like that. You might care whether cars speed up and down your street and almost like T-bone your car and you're backing out. You might make a call to the city and be like, hey, can you put in a, a speed limit sign or something? But still, it's an arm's length engagement, or an arm's length disengagement. And when you're renting, there's a leave me alone mentality. Look, as long as you don't bother me and I don't bother you, we're fine, right? I'll stay off your toes, you stay off mine. And in a renting mentality, we still, there's no skin in the game. It's just a place we're living this year, and we'll be gone. There's no buy in. And then there's what we read earlier. What Megan read earlier, the ambassador mentality. And that's not just something Paul made up in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians. Oh, I guess you're an ambassador. Go be like that. It's, it's ancient. That metaphor has been used throughout the Old Testament as well. In an ambassador mindset, you are a person absolutely saturated with home, your home culture. You're an expert in it. You know it. You're allegiant to it. But you're willing to go and live in another place long term. And you're willing to learn that culture. And you're willing to become an expert in that culture and their views and their values. And you become a bridge builder. You care about their problems. You're actually calling home thinking about how can we help them kind of fix these things over here. And you're building bridges from this temporary home to your home. And you're trying to bring the best of this home to serve this place that you're in. You're conversant with both cultures. You're, ser- you're using home to serve the place you're at. And that is what Paul says we are. That's what Jeremiah says we are. That's what God says you are. An expert, saturated in home, who's been sent out on a post, which right now in my life and your life is Athens, Georgia, in 2018. You're not here by accident. You're not here by those circumstantial things like Nebuchadnezzar sent me here. You're you're not just here because I graduated. I'm in college. I grew up in Watkinsville. Of course, I came to UGA. You're here because God 
put you here now. And you're in the room tonight because God put you here tonight. Not by accident. And this is how he calls us to live. To be culture makers. To be present here. To be engaged here. To ask questions about the ministries you go to. The churches you go to. The classes you have. The neighborhoods you live in. To have an ambassador mindset. Their problems are my problems. Their needs become your needs. You begin to intercede for them. And you say, well, hey, I know the living God who says I am the apple of his eye. Who says, pester him and he will answer me. So I get to pray to him for this person who doesn't know him. Has no clue who he is. But I do. So I'm going to pray for that person. That's what he calls us to. To pray for their welfare. For all the things I said earlier, that the lights would come on. This is how he calls us to live in this place. I have an example of this. Uh, this some of our best friends in New Mexico, um, before we moved, they lived in one of these newer neighborhoods where the houses were kind of really close together. And so there was like 30 people in their little street. And um, Rebecca, who's Anna, one of Anna's best friends, um, Rebecca's like a little social butterfly. She can talk to anybody. And so um, their street went from, they're the only people who went to our church on that street to when we left, I am not exaggerating, I think there were like seven families from that street alone in the period of a year who were coming to our church now. And this is the way it happened. Uh, There was one day that um, this woman was out on a ladder. She had a full body, a full arm cast from shoulder to here on. She had a crying infant in a little bumbo thing, like the bobblehead things for babies, sitting there, and another baby screaming in a little carrying thing, like a, whatever those are called, I'm a dad, I don't know. But, um, and she was putting up Christmas lights, and she sees this, and she just goes over, and she's like, hey, can I help you? Can I, like, take care of the kids or something, or just sit here and watch them while you're doing that? And she finds out that just through getting to know this lady later on that uh, this lady has a a horribly abusive marriage. Her husband was home at the time and just kind of completely hands off with the kids and the mom. And so she's out there after work with one arm broken up on a ladder putting up Christmas lights for her kids. One of her kids has an intestinal problem from birth, has to have a colostomy bag um, from birth. And... What happened is Rebecca finds out about this. They start bringing meals over to them. They, Zach, her husband, comes over and decorates the entire house. They watch the kids so she can get a break. They ask her, how can we help? They tell her about church. She comes to church a few times. And then there's some other people on the street who are Christians. They just didn't know about University Prez. And so they start coming because Rebecca invites them too. They all get in on serving and helping this family. So another girl named Carissa is at home all day. Her husband's an FBI agent, and she goes across the street, and she's like, hey, uh, we want to take care of your little baby until you get back from work, so you don't have to pay for daycare. So Carissa now spends her days with a somewhat newborn baby with a colostomy bag that can't get infected on the port, that's continually filling up and spilling, that has to be held because you can't put him down, because if you put him down and he squirms around, it detaches. So she's holding a baby for four to six hours a day, for her neighbor, who another neighbor saw putting up Christmas lights with one arm and two crying babies. When God calls us to live in and serve the world, that's what he means. 
you look across the street, a lady putting up something with one arm, and you say, I'm responsible. i got to go get on that ladder and put those lights up. And you hear the story of the baby say, that's our baby now. We take care of it too. This is the way the kingdom of God comes. God inserts his people on Santa Sabina Avenue to bring the people that he is drawing to himself to himself. This is how he's building his kingdom. He's doing it through you. If you don't know this God, by the way, would you consider being encouraged that this is how God wants his people to interface with you and treat you and love you and serve you and bless you? Maybe it's time you reconsider what you think God is like because this is what he's like. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that the gospel is that you didn't stay in your home and watch us from afar and judge us. But you took on flesh and you came and you lived among us and you didn't create and build a little monastery for yourself so you wouldn't get dirty, but you entered into our mess, our shame, our pain, and above all, our sin, and you bore it for us, and you interceded for us, and you knew that your welfare was tied to our welfare, and you gave your life for us. We pray that we more and more would become people who look like our Savior, For our sake, for your sake, for the world's sake, for Athens and UGA's sake, we pray this all in your name. Amen.